the, the course that we've got in Christchurch and the location gives us an opportunity for you to get, as I say, within 30 metres of the edge of the course on land. You know, you've heard me talk around in my prior life, you know, we, we might not be a Grand Slam, but we could always act like one. And I don't see why we can't, you know, I look at something like a Singapore Grand Prix um, in Formula One, I don't see why we couldn't have that same aspiration to be the Singapore Grand Prix of sailing. I, I talk often about what I call my little brother syndrome. Dale was diagnosed as a genius at the age of four he was an incredibly gifted sports person when he was young and you know, I was hugely competitive so I either had to figure out how I could win differently than everyone else or spend a lot of time crying and so yeah, I think I've taken that into my business sense. Yeah, if Serena did something stupid I wouldn't be afraid to take the piss out of her with it and I think it made it real for them. Yeah, we, we went the extra mile, we'd always do as, as much as we could make the personal touch, we'd always try and do that. Yeah, and funnily enough that year Serena won and couldn't have been more of a delight to work with and ended up staying in our lounge drinking until 3am in the morning and doing cartwheels on centre court. And I just remember the other, the, the WTA going, what the hell do you have down there? Welcome along to the 50th episode of Broadreach Radio. On today's show, we talk to Carl Budge. Now, Carl doesn't purport to be much of a sailor, but he is one of this country's best event organisers, having previously turned the ASP Classic into one of the world's best tennis tournaments. He consistently attracted some of the world's best tennis players to this country, and now he's looking to sprinkle his magic dust on the New Zealand leg of Sail GP. Carl talks about why he got involved in Sail GP and what his vision is for the New Zealand legs that will be held in alternating years between Christchurch and Auckland. He also talks about what the fan experience is like at GP events around the world. Talk inevitably turns to tennis, and what tricks he used to lure the players like Serena and Venus Williams, Anna Ivanovic and Maria Sharapova to these shores. He also talks about the time he gave Serena a piece of his mind, after a less than inspiring performance, but she still came back. Carl delves into his background that saw him leave school at 16 and somehow find himself working at the WTA and Manchester United, but also turned down job opportunities with Formula One, Manchester City and the NFL. This is a slightly different episode of Broadreach Radio, but Carl tells a lot of good stories about his life and professional sport. I hope you enjoy. Joining us on the show today is Carl Budge. Welcome. Good day, Michael, and congratulations uh, on on fifty episodes. Yeah, well, it's good to be here. Actually, you never quite knew where it was going to take us uh, when we first started this back down in lockdown in March two thousand and twenty. Uh, so yeah, a bit of a milestone. So uh, you should be honoured to be uh, number fifty. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's nice that something positive came out of March 2020. Was, uh, I, I was busy cancelling events in March 2020, so I'm uh, the, the yin and yang maybe for the 50th. Indeed, yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, but 
First of all, I want to put you on the spot a little bit here. Um, this is obviously a yachting podcast, and uh, you've said previously that you don't know your port from your starboard. So do you know it now? <laughs> yep, I, I, I've learnt the four-letter word as the same as left, so at least I've got that far uh, that far down the down the path. But uh, yeah, I'm still yet to get out on one of our F50s, and uh, yeah, I, I I said to the team that I'm going to go and do my uh, my license down at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron later in the year. So um, some learning to do, but if it's any consolation, I also have a bloody terrible forehand. So um, hopefully, it isn't too many bad omens coming into trying to to put an experience on. Yeah, so look, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Well, not too much anyway, but it's kind of, I guess, irrelevant in your job because you're tasked with organising next year's Sail GP event coming to Christchurch uh, next March. Um, I understand you've just been down to Christchurch recently. Does it feel like your second home now? Yeah, it does, and genuinely love it. And and not just saying that, I, I do love getting down there. I, I, the reception we've been given is unbelievable. The canvas is out of this world in terms of a village for us to be able to come and um, overlay and, and, and foster a bit of an experience down there. Uh, so, yeah, look, I, I, I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, I actually think not knowing sailing is my greatest strength. Um, there's plenty of people in our business that know a lot about sailing. Um, and so I look at it solely through the eyes of the fans that we're trying to get, um, not necessarily the fans that we've already got. And so... Um, yeah, hopefully that's a bit of a, a, a strength coming in, but uh, certainly love getting down to Christchurch. And you just every time you walk out onto that Naval Point area, you get pretty excited around what you're going to be able to build. Uh, what you're going to be able to build there. So you've got roughly nine months until the event comes here. You know, how are things shaping up? Are you pretty happy with where things stack up? Yeah, we are. It's, it's in a good space. I mean, the venue there that the Christchurch City Council have done for us is unbelievable. I, I, I didn't think I'd ever get excited by a, um, a piece of asphalt before, uh, but when you saw the sort of before and after, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing just seeing how that uh, how that area has changed in the last 12 months. So, um, yeah, it's exciting seeing it come closer and closer. Um, we're certainly getting pretty clear on what we're trying to build down there, um, what, the, what the experience will be like, starting to be able to imagine sitting in the seat in the front row and just seeing those F-50s roaring at you. Um, I, I want you to feel, those people sitting in the front row, I want you to start feeling nervous. Like, do we need to start moving? Uh, they're, they're coming that close and directly at you. Um, and so it's pretty exciting when you start working through that sort of stuff. Uh, I, I have the uh, the other experience of going through the tunnel and getting petrified of how we're going to get all these fans through a tunnel. Um so there's there's uh, there's excitement and trepidation all in one, but um, yeah, that's what makes our life interesting, right? So you've been to a few Sail GP events now um, overseas since taking on that role. You know, what were your first impressions when you saw it live? Yeah, look, for for me, it was just so different to what I'd seen before. Uh, you know, probably like most armchair sports fans in New Zealand, you, your knowledge of the sports really you know once every four years. Um, where to see ten boats on the course. Um, yeah, what is a, a very small course compared to the courses we're probably known um, around America's Cup here? Uh, it's just chaos. <laughs> it, um, as a as a sports geek, you just go, man, this is this is insane. Uh, so look, I, I loved it. I loved how close the boats got. You know, again, that was one of the pieces that as a as a casual fan last summer, you, know, you still felt like they were a long way away most of the time. Where 
you're almost sitting on them that they get so close here. So from that side, I thought it was unbelievable. The the hosting experience was as good as anything I've seen in sport um, over over my last two decades operating it. You know, the I guess the upper echelon of, of, of sport. It was an incredible experience um, to in, in our hospitality areas. But I think probably the piece that I came away with most was just the the machines themselves, the F50s, to see them turn at that speed and just the the the, the how quick they change direction is just phenomenal. I kind of liken it to you know walking around our event venue. There's a few corners you're going to have to go around, and I I kind of want to create that you when you walk around it, it it's hard. If you do a light jog, it's really hard to get around that corner now. Or then imagine what it's like going 90 kilometers an hour around that corner on foils and that's ultimately what these boats are doing um and so that was probably the biggest takeaway for me was just you know the, the sheer speed and maneuverability was was pretty phenomenal yeah i can't really imagine all the g-forces that are going through these sailors bodies either a bit, bit like uh, top gun and the maverick film at the moment right yeah it kind of felt like it it's you know just to, there was one moment where pete turned across the australian team and you know, th- there was literally only centimetres of judgment left. Yeah, it was it, he turned on a dime right behind them, and you know, God, if I was sitting at the front of that boat, you would have been bracing yourself for contact. And you know, it was just so perfectly judged, and off we went again. And you know, it, it was like that was just a non-event, and I'm sitting out there out of breath just watching it. Going, Jesus, these guys are. It, it is quite phenomenal. You, I, I don't think I appreciated the true athleticism. Uh, and, and until I got involved, and and you do realise, like like any sport at that elite level, just how truly brilliant and how far away they are from the yeah the, us normal punters. Uh, it is quite remarkable. I guess we also have seen a few incidences of uh, of of crashes and, and and accidents, so it sort of does illustrate how on the edge this uh, the sail GP is. Yeah, I, I, it's obviously great for us growing new fans, and you know. I watch Formula One part for the for the story behind the story and part for the crashes, right? And so, yeah, you know, I think it's entertaining. I think it gives us that excitement. Um, you know, and if, if, as long as we can do that in a safe way, you know, what are our versions of the halo, etc.? Um, yeah, you know, then you know, I think a little bit of it's good for the sport. The the only piece you you don't quite appreciate is, I guess, our cars uh, a little bit harder to rebuild than Formula One. So. Um, yeah, built, rebuilding an F50 is uh, not quite as easy as slapping on a new nose cone in the pits and, and joining the race again. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like someone who doesn't have to pay the bills. So maybe if you asked um, you know, some of the teams just uh, how they feel about those crashes, it'd be a, bit, a little bit different. Oh, I, I just, well, I was lucky enough to be in Sail GP Technologies up in Walkworth for the, the Sydney event, um, helping, well, just watching really the, uh, the behind the scenes and sitting in the control room up there. And I just finished a tour of the the facility there, where they showed me how the boats were made and what the the hulls were made out of, etc. When that big crash between I think it was the Japanese and Brits, uh, where the British boat jumped up out of the water and and sliced the front of the Japanese boat clean off, and having just seen how they're made, it, just the the sheer force on that, it was remarkable to see it completely severed, bobbing up and down in the water. It was quite remarkable. Um, yeah, there's a there's a lot more risk and danger and um, yeah speed I guess involved than we probably give it credit for watching at home. 
Well, that's not your uh, expertise, the whole technology and, and boat building behind it. Um, so you're more interested, I guess, in terms of the event itself and the fan kind of experience. So are you kind of looking to replicate what's being done overseas in Christchurch or are you sort of trying to Kiwiify it a little? Yeah, look, we, we want to deliver an experience that uh, is, is relevant to our audience and the, the, the front plan of our, our strategy has changed the way the world is entertained by sailing. Um, and that's the sort of mandate that gets me out of bed and I, and I think we can do that in New Zealand. I think the, the course that we've got in Christchurch and the location gives us an opportunity for you to get, as I say, within 30 metres of the edge of the course on land. You know, it gives a different opportunity to come and participate and engage with these these machines, these these F50s, in a um, in a way that we haven't done before. And then I think when we come to Auckland, if we get the course location that we're after, you know, then I really do think it can be you know a complete um, transition to to what sailing has traditionally experienced. And you know, you've heard me talk around my prior life. You know, we we might not be a grand slam, but we could always act like one. And I don't see why we can't, you know, I look at something like a Singapore Grand Prix um, in Formula One, I don't see why we couldn't have that same aspiration to be the Singapore Grand Prix of sailing. Uh, that gives us a pretty awesome mandate to get stuck into here. So can you fill us in and, and tell us where the Auckland uh, racetrack's going to be? It, it depends on our Harbour Master friend, um, where, where that's really going to sit. But you know, our, our remit has always been in a Harbour racing. Um, so we, we want to get as close to, close to the city as we can, have the backdrop of the city and enable fans to not have to get on a boat to go watch. We want people to be able to rock up really easily. We, we want you to be out walking the dog on a Saturday afternoon and stumble upon, oh, well, what's this going on? Well, I didn't know that about these guys. Gee, that's that's a little bit different than I thought. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of utopia for us. So we're pushing pretty hard to, to make sure we've got a, a course that fulfills that brief. So you mentioned Auckland Christchurch. Uh, New Zealand has been awarded the hosting rights, I think, for the next four years. But why the alternation between, uh, you know, Christchurch and Auckland? Yeah, I guess it kind of gives us the best of everything. Uh, yeah, as, as the guy that put that to, together, my motivation was really around, you know, we, we talk about growing audiences. Um, yeah, and we to do that, particularly in, a, in an emerging sport, um, yeah, you've got to take it to the people and let them come and see it and, and invite them in. Um, and, and that's really what this is about for us. It gives us an opportunity to take sailing to an audience that probably didn't recognise that they could be part of it before. Um, you know, sailing in Auckland go hand in hand, right? But sailing in Christchurch don't. And so, yeah, what an awesome opportunity for us to get back there and, and show a really different side of that city. Um, we, we take the responsibility of being the first major event that's come to Christchurch since the earthquakes really seriously. Um, we're bloody proud of that fact and something that we want to do justice around it uh, but also a great opportunity to talk to a whole new group of, of fans that otherwise haven't really um, engaged in our sport so it kind of gave us the the, the best of both worlds um, the venue there is probably as good if not better than anywhere else in the world uh, for what the style of racing that we try to produce it's got really consistent wind so I'm told at least um, uh, every, every day down there at that time of the year um, yeah, we can we can build an amphitheater and get people really close to the edge of the course and um, and do that all from land whilst having our tech site in the same space, which we've just not been able to achieve anywhere else in the world. So from that side, Christchurch was just so incredibly appealing, uh, and they 
welcomed us with open arms. I, I cannot talk highly enough of how great they've been to work with, and I, I do genuinely say that. I'm, I'm not saying that just to tick the commercial box. Um, yeah, it has been a breath of fresh air um, to run an event in Christchurch, so um, it didn't take us much uh, encouragement to get back there. Auckland, uh, I guess, was the mess, and you know, commercially speaking, we still needed to get as many people as we can engaging this product if we're if we're going to hit the commercial goals that, that we've all got and hit, hit the viewership and all of those sort of things that, that the modern sports property needs to, then you need to take it to the masses as well. And so Auckland sort of gave us that opportunity. Clearly, we've got a um, you know pretty rich sailing history up in this part of the world, um, and we thought it was time that we could come in and, and show a really different side of the sport um, and, and make sure that we were unlocking, I guess, the commercial hub of New Zealand as well. So in 15 minutes or so of talking already, we've mentioned Formula One you know, a number of times, and it's been described as the Formula One of sailing and what there are 11 stops uh, this year in season three. How big do you see SailGP getting? Yeah, I, I think the growth at the moment has just been phenomenal. I think we're all desperately trying to hang on with how quick that the, the growth is occurring, uh, which is a, a champagne problem. Uh, so we've, we've grown from six to eight to 11 events now. Um, we've, we've got nine teams um, on, on the starting line at the moment. We're expecting that to grow again next year. Um, yeah, there's, there's been no shortage of interest in having teams and new events come into the league. So, uh, yeah, I think the challenge for us is going to be how we manage that growth. Um, our sustainability um, protocols are really important to us. So uh, that means when we're doing our global logistics at sea freight because it's the most sustainable form of freight um, that we can get around the world in uh, and so yeah that has its challenges right you know that that's that's not as speedy as chucking the gear on the on a cargo plane and 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 landing tomorrow anywhere in the world um, you know we, we take three four weeks to get between events so there's a natural um, a natural cap for us in the immediate future around how many events we can have uh, in that process but uh, we also you know, we've got to keep looking at if we if our goal was to get to a Formula One style uh, calendar, what might we be able to do, in, in terms of um, you know, new kits that could help us speed up the the time in between races or new strategies that allow us to um, to, to get more events on that on, on that calendar and more regular content. Do you think it'll get to the point where there'll be you know like multiple teams from one country or? Or does that kind of dilute the product, you know, that nationalistic country versus country element? Yeah, I, I don't think so is the honest answer. I, 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 you know, that's, that's a question really for uh, for Russell, what his, his view is there. But I, I don't think we would ever get to multiple teams from the one country, um, you know, particularly while we've got enough interest as it is with... Um, with people coming into the, the league. I don't know that we we need to dilute it any further than that. Um, but again, you know, the, it's, it's evolved so quickly in the three years we've had to date um, that you know, you, I, I wouldn't put anything off the table at this point. It, the growth has just been so quick. And like any startup, you sort of start off on a course and you know, very quickly you know, a couple of key milestones all of a sudden can change the, the path that you're going. Um, and yeah, as a startup sports league, we're probably in that phase at the moment. Mm, well, watch the space, huh? So you made a name for yourself in this country running an event, uh, the ASB Classic Tennis Tournament, which, which we'll talk a little bit more about in depth shortly. 
what was the attraction of of sale gp for you yeah i i can pinpoint it back to a moment i i, I went and met russell for a coffee um back end of 2020 uh november december somewhere around there in november 20 uh, 2020 and i don't think either of us really had a motive for that meeting um but pretty quickly it took shape and when russell was sort of explaining what sale gp was where it's going what it's trying to achieve it, it there was a lot of sort of areas there that it ticked my my passion points uh, you know, i've always been incredibly fan focused yeah you know, I, I always have had the belief that before anyone else i report to the fans um, and if i do right by them then it'll trickle through to everybody else as well um and and that was very much the vision that russell articulated to me um I'm a big believer in that I think the future of commercial partnerships will be purpose-based. I, I, I think it'll be how you can influence your community to, to have more positive outcomes than how much media value you can provide them. I think that's going to be the, the key to unlocking you know, uh, good, good brand partnerships moving forward and an area that SailGP really delivers in. Um, and and I, I just, you look at the, the, the racing and... Um, yeah, he sort of described the the fact that they're all 100 percent identical. You you know, getting the best sailors in the world and throwing them on a small course in front of people uh, on an on a level playing field, and it's pretty hard not to get excited by that remit. And so, yeah, I, I sort of went into that coffee not really knowing what we were catching up about, and came away pretty convinced that I'd be joining Sail GP thereafter. And I think maybe four weeks later, I'd made the decision that I was I was leaving. Uh, what was the prime contract at the time with with, with tennis Auckland and um, yeah started in uh, in Sail GP in March the the following year. So are there things from your time as as ASB Classic tennis director that you think might translate well to the Sail GP? Yeah, I, I, I think that that principle of looking at it through the eyes of the audience we're trying to achieve will set us up really well. You know that that was ultimately always. The goal at the ASB Classic, we we looked at who we wanted to be our fans, not who were our fans, and what did they need to see and hear from us in order to become a fan. And I think you know, hopefully, the results there showed the success of that strategy. We went from a little under twenty thousand people coming through the gates paid each year to over a hundred thousand in our final year. Um, I'm not sure we got any more tennis fans. Um, I, you know, we just got more people, more general sports fans, more fans of an occasion. Um, and then we took them on a journey to become tennis fans. Uh, I'll probably try and deploy that exact same mindset here. Um, you know, I think our, our job, if you break it down, is reasonably comfortable. We, all we want to do is entertain you. Uh, and most people are reasonably open to being entertained. And so if you take that approach of, of, of speaking to them where, when, and how they want, I think your your product will go a long way to, to succeeding. Um and so that's certainly the the approach and the discipline I'm trying to bring into Sail GP, uh, and I say it regularly to the team. Yeah, you know, yep, that's great. But how does our fans need to hear that? Uh, that 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 sounds wonderful. Sail talk. How, what does the non-sailing fan hear when when we speak about it that way? Um, and so hopefully that's uh, that's something that we're we're gradually learning. And um, you know, hopefully when it comes to event time, you'll see some of that come to fruition at the events. So if you don't mind, like before we dive into the ASB Classic and some of the, you know, the good stories behind that, perhaps it might be useful for people to understand how you got to where you are, because it's not a common road that you've followed. Um, from what I can tell, you grew up on a farm in Pukekohe, 
but I guess it's probably fair to say you weren't the greatest student. Um, I read somewhere you achieved a highest mark of 56 in geography for school certificate. Um, is that kind of why you left school when you were 16? Yeah, I've got a big smile on my face when you read that out. Yeah, I look, I, and, and yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about still now. I, I always thought I had more to offer than what my school marks would suggest, yet there just wasn't the avenue in learning to get that out of you. The, the moment you put something in front of me that I was passionate about, the way I went. Um, but I didn't think that sort of schools program, I'm, I'm still yet to ever use SIN, COS, or TAN. Um, and so, yeah, it, it probably wasn't for me. I, I went to school to play sport. Um, yeah, it wasn't so much to eat my lunch. I, I went to go and play rugby at lunch. That's all I really cared about. So it has been a really different journey. Um, but, you know, I, I hope it's also a journey that, you know, doesn't become abnormal. The fact it is abnormal I find surprising. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced there is brilliance in all of us if, if found and if given the freedom to, um, to go out and achieve it. And, yeah, sometimes, um, you know, a structured system is not always the best for that. So when you leave school, what did you expect you might do with your life? Um, I wanted to play sport. It just turns out I wasn't that good. <laughs> um, so I, I, I wanted to, um, to to follow a cricket dream and see if getting going and playing cricket in the UK was a was a possibility. Um, I also spent a bit of time wanting to be a teacher, which is really ironic, right, considering what I just said around the school system. Um, but I became really passionate around that. It's, you know, you, uh, I, I wasn't an unintelligent student. I, it just didn't really work for the way that you know, I was never going to spend time doing something that I found completely disinteresting or couldn't see why it was beneficial. Um, but I, I always loved people and always loved wanting to, um, you know, foster a good learning environment. So I think sport teaches you that. Um, so, yeah, it was a really odd piece. And I, I was lucky enough, I, I've got a job with Auckland Council on a sort of internship. Um, there was sort of a, a business internship. Uh, and our department got outsourced six months into my role and so I was sort of faced with gosh I'm 16 now and I've uh, the job that I left school for is no longer around what am I going to do and I I saw an opportunity to um, to jump into a, a tele sales gig uh, and it was the best learning I reckon I could ever have so you're you're a 16 year old all of a sudden ringing c-suite executives trying to sell them something uh, and you know particularly in a those days all it was was phone you didn't have the chance to sort of LinkedIn them or you know uh, reach them through social media or like and you know no one knew how old you were or what you were doing behind the phone and so I, I, I flourished in that environment I absolutely loved it I was lucky enough I ended up leading a team at 17 um, and one of the conferences I got it was, it was selling business conferences and one of the conferences I worked on was a sponsorship conference and I can remember just going holy crap is this a is this a career choice? I get to go and talk sport. And so, yeah, from that moment, it was pretty clear that once I knew that was an option of, of a job, um, that was all I was really going to do. And um, yeah, I, I guess I've chased, I probably spent half my life getting told to stop talking sport. And I've probably spent the other half trying to prove everyone wrong. So one day you meet Warrior CEO Mick Watson. Tell us about that encounter and I guess what effect that had on you as well. Yeah, it, it, it's really funny. Mick probably doesn't even really understand how much of an architect of my career he was. Um, so I met Mick at that conference, the sponsorship conference. Uh, he was speaking there along with uh, a lady called Lindley Kirk-Smith from Vodafone. Um, and 
again, being behind the phone talking to C-suite, you had a bit of confidence talking to um, business leaders. And so I just walked straight up to them and said, mate, I want to be where you are in 10 years' time. How do I get there? Um, and you know, Mick, he, he, I doubt he even remembers this interaction, but I was really lucky that he sort of straight away went, cool, well, why don't you come and see us out at the office? I'll take you out and show everyone. And I started doing an internship there. Um, it wasn't long after I went out and started um, working in the comms and the, the commercial and events team there that he actually left. Um, and so I, I got this wonderful experience. I still vividly remember walking around as a 17-year-old running game day at Mount Smart Stadium and handing out posters and seeing friends in the crowd and just the pride I had of being the kid walking around doing, you know, being involved and entertaining them. And um, I guess that really fostered the the career thereafter um, and so yeah whilst it was a, a very fleeting transaction it was one that probably paved the way for where I am today and I'll always be incredibly thankful that um, you know, Mick opened a door that I didn't really have an idea even existed back then Do you still want to be Warriors CEO? <laughs> I get asked that a bit at the moment um, Yeah I probably do to be honest um, in a really weird way I probably wouldn't be at the moment um, but you know, if you present it with a challenge and trying to turn something around is, um, yeah, I'm I'm always going to gravitate to that more than doing something that's already successful. Um, I, I'm probably motivated by looking at a problem slightly different than everybody else. Uh, yeah, I, I talk often about what I call my little brother syndrome, and you'll know my brother. And you know, Dale was diagnosed as a genius at the age of four. He was an incredibly gifted sports person when he was young. Uh, and yeah, you know, I was hugely competitive, so I either had to figure out how I could win differently to everyone else, or spend a lot of time crying. Um, and so, yeah, I think I've taken that into my business sense. And so, when you look at those sort of those roles like the Warriors, you know, uh, what an awesome remit! But yeah, could you be the guy that turned around the Warriors and you know, be it winning a premiership or or making a difference in, in the community they live within? Be um. Yeah, something certainly at some point in this career and in, in my career I'd, I'd, I'd have a, an interest in for sure but tennis soon became your thing though right so i think you picked up a job at the australian open and then the wta um you know how did that sort of transition go from from league and and domestic sport to then suddenly being in these international organizations yeah so again probably coming down that path of realizing you have to do something different and I wanted to get to Formula One. That was always my career goal. I, I swear I had the, the same dream every night for three years. I just desperately wanted to get to Formula One, and I knew I couldn't do that from New Zealand, or at least it was going to be incredibly hard to do that from New Zealand. Um, you know, working in rugby and rugby league and the like, it just wasn't the pathway. And so I identified that the biggest and best sporting event in our part of the world that maybe was achievable where you'd get noticed was the Australian Open. Um, and so I bugged their HR team for 12 months um, and sure enough when a when a sponsorship manager role came up well actually back then it was sponsorship coordinator um, when that came up you you were front of mind um, and so yeah I, I got interviewed and um, having never I can distinctly remember flying into Melbourne with my suitcase going oh this is home having never been there I'd only left New Zealand once at, at that point all the interview process was over the phone or video conference, very early days of video conference. Um, and so, yeah, I, I packed my bags and shot off to the Australian Open and you know, started there as a with a full head of hair um, as a 
as a young, I think I was 20 at the time, sponsorship coordinator and had left as acting head of sponsorship uh, when I was 24 a few years later and you know, was lucky enough to work under Craig Tiley, um, who was just an unbelievable leader and um, yeah, as a, as a young kid that was pretty keen to learn and not afraid to get stuck in and do things. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was probably the best environment I could hope for. It sounds to me like you were quite forward uh, you know, and weren't shy, I guess, of, of talking to people, approaching people, asking people for a job, essentially. Is that belligerence, persistence, um, you know, a belief that if you put yourself in, in front of them often enough, they'll, they'll kind of can't ignore you after a while? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of all of the above. Like, that, that probably goes back to Dale again. If I did the same things that he did, I was going to lose. And so I had to figure out doing it differently. And I, you know, I, I couldn't compete with school marks. I, I couldn't compete with tennis experience. You know, so I had to figure out my own way. Um, and so I've always, I don't know, I guess I've just always had that um, discipline to, to look at things in a really different way. And my favorite term is, is the inconvenient truths and acknowledge your own inconvenient truths. What, you know, what are my limitations and realities? And then figure out how I can work around those. And um, you know, I, I think if you if you're smart, you'll find a way. Interviews to me are quite an easy process. If you answer all of their questions thoughtfully, it's very hard for them to say no. Um, and so you know, you just sit back and go, "What do they actually want to hear? What's you know, go away and really do your homework and have an answer ready to go for every question they throw at you." And if if you do that, nine times out of ten, you know, it, it, you're going to come out pretty well. So after a while, you know, you said Melbourne was your home. Then it was Beijing. There was London. Did jobs come your way, or did you continue to chase them? Um, yeah, I'm not someone that ever likes sitting still, which is probably amazing with how long I stayed at the Classic. Um, but jobs did come, and I think opportunities come just just naturally come if you if you're someone that's open to the unfamiliar and the unknown, then jobs open up, and so you know, I've got to. I mentioned I was acting um, head of sponsorship for Aussie Open. I knew that I was never going to get the full-time gig, so the, our boss had been let go, and so I, I assumed doing the sales and a colleague of mine took over the account management side. And But I knew it was never going to be permanent that I'd get to keep that role. And But then once you've had a taste of it, you didn't really want to go back and be an account manager anymore. Um, and so yeah, I sort of sat down with Craig and we talked that through, and he's like, well, Let's, let's plot a path. And so I went to Roland Garros with Tennis Australia. They introduced me to a whole lot of people up in the UK and um, you know, I came out of it with a few job opportunities across Wimbledon, uh, Red Bull F1, Aussie, uh, the um, ATP and, and the WTA. And um, yeah, you just, I, I took the plunge. I didn't know. I didn't know anyone to, in London like most Kiwis. I'd never been there. And so you jumped at it and then... You know, after 18 months of being there, an opportunity came with the WTA to go and run the Asia Pacific, um, which was their biggest growth area at that time. And so again, you know, what an awesome experience. Uh, horribly uncomfortable. I, I couldn't speak any Mandarin then, and I'm not much better now. Um, but what a great experience, right? No, no one's there been a clerk. You know, everyone, everyone that's that's out there has got an interesting story to tell and. Um, yeah, it was just a great. I'm so thankful that I had that opportunity, and I think if you're open to saying yes to them, they they tend to keep coming at you. 
So then tell us about Manchester United, because um, I even understand you turned down a role with the NFL in New York, which I'm guessing not many people do. Yeah, it's a really weird junction in my career, to be honest. Um, I was living in Beijing, um, and I got an email through saying, uh, there's this job at Manchester United, would you be interested in it? And I said, yeah, that'd be lovely, thanks. Um, and so I came home and worked the ASB Classic um, that that summer as a sort of free trip home at Christmas uh, with the WTA. Um, so I came out and did a comms role here. It wasn't my normal job, but uh, I always sort of put my hand up to do it so I, I could come home for Christmas. Um, and I had to leave from, I, I worked through the Thursday of the ASB Classic and then on the Friday I had to shoot up to London. And so they flew me up there for um, for a few few days to go through the interview process, which was by far and away the scariest interview process I'd, I'd ever gone through. Um, quite outrageous. <laughs> um, I, I wrote down 160 questions that I thought they could ask me, and the first four, none of them were on that list. Um, and so uh, I think, thankfully, they've gone through that discipline of being so confident going into the interview that you could handle the unknown when, when it was thrown at you. Um, but yeah, I, I got to a point where they, they offered me a contract and um, I there was a, a, a love interest, shall we say, um, in, in London and I, I didn't need much convincing to go back there and so I took the opportunity with with them rather than the opportunity with the NFL in New York um, and then unfortunately ran into visa issues and so because it was a direct hire they hadn't advertised, it was a would you like a job and, and acceptance, they hadn't done any of the uh, work required to get you a sponsored visa and I'd finished my two-year visa that you can have up in up in the UK and so unfortunately after a couple of months I was um, I was left in London with uh, with an unknown how long it was going to take to get a visa they couldn't wait and um, yeah led to a, a really weird junction in, in my career but um, one that I, I'm not a big football fan and so one that I think in, in hindsight probably worked out for the best. What, what era was it at, at United? Because I think towards the end of the Alex Ferguson kind of years, they were Premier League champions a couple of times and cha- uh, Champions League um, champions. Was it that sort of era? Yeah, it was 2011 from memory. Um, would have been, no, maybe 2012. Um, 2011, 2012, because I remember what been in Turkey with the WTA for the, uh, for the Rugby World Cup. So it must have been 2012. Um, so yeah, that that sort of era, and you know, you go. And I had my interview in the Sir Alex Ferguson boardroom, and um, yeah, it was a, a pretty interesting place to go in, but just really different too. Uh, yeah, tennis for all the professionalism that it has around the world, there's still quite a family feel. Uh, you know, it is for, for me. It was my traveling family. Um, you know, but that that extends as far as sponsors, where United had four cola deals and as uh, in its own right. Um, yeah, it was just such a different. It was a big, ruthless commercial beast, um, and probably not as innocent as what sport uh, through the naive Kiwi's eyes was. And so, um, I think in hindsight, it was probably for the best. Did Ferguson ever give you the uh, hair dryer treatment? No, I never got to meet him. Um, uh, we never really got started, to be honest. It was one of those ones where you you moved your life back, and um, everyone was really nervous around. Um, you know, breaching any labour laws, particularly when someone like United relies on the ability to have a, a healthy status to be able to bring people to come and join the organisation, be it players or otherwise. 
so you never really got fully integrated. Um, so yeah, I never I never got to meet uh, Fergie. I, the the boardroom was as close as I got. Walking through um, the office and going and seeing all the trophies and the like was quite staggering. Just to see how successful that club really had been. So the visa issues is that uh, when the ASB Classic opportunity came up? Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, I'd kept in touch with the NFL. I still keep in touch with the guy that was running NFL International for them um, at the time. And I was actually looking at moving to Toronto to join their NFL International team. Um, it wasn't the role that was in New York. It was a, a new role that I'd st- sort of stuck in touch with uh, out of Toronto. And um, there was that and an opportunity with ESPN in, in Singapore. And I'd probably mentally made my mind up to go to one of those two. Um, and I'm, I went and met Robin Kittle, the then CEO of Tennis Auckland, for a coffee actually at Chelsea Football Stadium randomly where she was staying. Um, and, yeah, it was just one of those moments that you just couldn't get out of your mind. Uh, you know, I just always kept going, even when I was prepping for other interviews or, um, you know, whatever you're doing, you just sort of started thinking around what you could do with the ASB Classic. Um, and it just sort of got to a point of, yeah, it was it was occupying too much of my thought process not to come and do it. And so, yeah, despite saying no initially, I, I reached back out to Robin and um, I remember her saying to me, oh, we're not going to be able to afford to pay what you, you'd, you'd be after. Um, you'd need to know that coming into the process. And you know, I've never been that motivated by that side. And I was like, that, that's not a problem. I, you know, I've, I've got a job I want to do here. Um, and yeah, it, it was, a, again, another one of those sort of sliding door moments. It's the week that I got home. I'd been I'd built a really good relationship with the chief commercial officer for Mercedes F1, um, and he kept promising me in a job, and I was like, okay, cool, cool, and you kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and it sort of got to that point where I couldn't wait any longer, and anyway, the week I got home and started in the role at Tennis Auckland, I get a message from him saying, give me a call, that job's ready, and so I gave him a call back quite excitedly from the car park, actually, at Tennis Auckland, and... Uh, he was like, look, I've got that job for you, but it's not what you think. And he'd just gone on as chief commercial officer for Manchester City. And he wanted me to, to go and lead their global sales team. And I said yes, and went through the visa process this time and got my visa. Um, but I said I needed to deliver the first ASB Classic. I, I couldn't leave Tennis Auckland in a, in a hole. Um, you know, I said I'd come home and, and deliver the event, and you know, I'd like to see that through. And I just distinctly remember the, the first player walking through the gates who happened to be a reasonable friend of mine, but a, 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 the first player that came through was a, a girl called Serana Kerstea. And I can just remember going, this is where I want to be. Uh, as much as, you know, the, the big world of the Premier League and everything that goes along with that was, was alluring, it wasn't where my heart was. And um, you mentioned my farming background a, a, a good mate of mine that's a really simple Kiwi farming boy turned around to me one day and said Budgie it's, it's all well and good driving a nice car but if you're driving it somewhere you don't want to go what's the point um, and that just really resonated with me and I was like this is where I want to be and so I had to ring, ring Richard back up and say mate thank you but no thank you I've, I've got to stick here and I'm really glad I did as, as challenging as I always knew the next role would be um, you yeah, know there's no greater pride I think than delivering something like we were able to deliver in your hometown. Yeah, Manchester City's just a little Sunday league team anyway, right? <laughs> I'm so emotive. And 
I just don't really care about football. And I mean that really nicely that I know a lot of people do. Um, it's just not a sport of passion for me. And so, um, yeah, if you're going to be leading sales or a sport like that, I might as well be going and leading a sales team for an insurance brand or a like, because it, it ultimately had the same appeal. And so, yeah, I, it, it could never stand up next to the, the satisfaction of, um, yeah, taking the ASB Classic through what we did. I'm guessing there'll be millions of people out there who would disagree with you, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so, look, the ASB Classic, and, and I think at that time, the, the men's was also still then the Heineken Open. You know, they were really popular tournaments and attracted good quality fields at that time. But you soon came in and said, you know, you wanted to transform the event from a Toyota Camry to a BMW. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, and, and I don't know, I also like using lines that everyone can relate to. Um, and I thought the Toyota Camry was a really good example. Like it was they were everything you thought they should be. They were really reliable. They did what you wanted them to do. They, yeah, they, they were the trusty friend that you always needed. But they weren't overly... Did anyone get excited about driving a mid-90s Toyota Camry? Yeah, did your head hit the pillow dreaming about that that mid nineties Toyota Camry? And I'd I'd probably question that. And so we we just thought they could be so much more. Um, and yeah, we just went about going right. How do we? You know, the original phase one was turning it into a mini Melbourne. Um, I probably got that wrong, if I'm honest. As we sort of got into it, uh, I sort of realised pretty quickly that we can't be a mini Melbourne. We needed to be us. Um, and so whilst the mini Melbourne was a great early years to, to get us going after sort of year two we started to pivot into going okay well no we're going to go and do things our way um, you know we, we certainly use those style of events as, as inspiration but uh, we sort of did it in our unique unique way and what's been incredibly humbling is watching other events follow what we do including the Australian Open um, and yeah that's given the, the esteem I hold that event in um, yeah there was a huge sense of pride seeing them copy something we did here um, yeah, it was, was, a, was a really rewarding moment. You also changed, chased some pretty big names, you know, and even managed to lure down the likes of Anna Ivanovic, Maria Sharapova, Caroline Wozniacki, Venus and Serena Williams, Joe Wilfred Songer, Juan Martin Del Potro, you know, the list goes on. It's, it's pretty impressive. How do you go about doing that? Because I'm guessing your war chest probably wasn't as big as some of the other tournaments being played elsewhere at the same time. Yeah, again, it probably goes back to the, the consistent theme. Man. I, I, if I did things the way that everyone else did, I was going to lose. Because um, you're right, the war chest was small. Um, it, it was also harder. You know, they had to leave Australia to come here when they were going to spend the next you know fortnight in Australia. Um, there was less ranking points. There was less prize money. The lot, yeah, you know, there was a lot up against you, right? But they're also really simple. <laughs> if you just play the person and make it a really targeted approach and take the time to care, then it would foster an environment that you could be successful. And, and to be honest, mate, we got we probably got so pedantic around it, it, it went to extreme levels. Uh, we, you, you know, I used to cop a lot of grief around why I always stood on the side of the court um, because that gave me a moment of... Um, connection with each of those players uh, that the next interaction you had with them was easier um, and so we used to do that sort of stuff we just constantly try and foster another opportunity to talk to them you know be it 
you know, silly things like we used to turn down the air conditioning in the players' lounge, so they'd have to come in and ask you to turn it up, and that would now give you an opportunity to have a conversation with them and find out something about them you didn't know. But it also give you an opportunity in an hour's time to go back and check in on them to go, is it okay now? You're, you're a bit warmer. You know, and give you another opportunity. Uh, I was always amazed by what a can of lollies in your in your office would do. Um, there's some correlation, I think, between athletes and sugar. Um, and yeah, you know, they'd always pop in for the lollies, and you know, it was again another chat, and you'd find out something else about them. Um, yeah, so we just took a really, really personal approach, um, and again, just looked at it really differently. And I remember one of my last things I did when I was at the WTA was we did a member survey of what tournaments could give players that would make them feel more um, more likely to want to come to that tournament. And bear in mind, we were competing with you know, the Middle East giving Rolexes and, uh, and, and Germany, the Porsche Grand Prix. If you're top 10 and turn up, you get a Porsche, uh, even before you've played a match. Uh, so you know, there was some pretty lofty stuff there. But again, once you've had that for a while, it all kind of just, it's just another piece, right? Where, what did they really want? You know, the, the, the most successful pieces for us was giving them an extra can of balls to practice with each day. You know, they, they wanted to be able to come and do their job. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned earlier the phrase inconvenient truths. I never sort of brought into the hype that we were, weren't anything other than a lead-up tournament to the Australian Open. We were only a lead-up tournament to the Australian Open. In the eyes of the players, that is all we were. And so rather than hiding behind that, I, I looked at that as an opportunity to use it. I was like, right, let's accept that. And now how do we go about being the best lead-up tournament to the Australian Open? So if that was opening on Christmas Day for 12 hours so they could practice, because it was just another day of the year for them, so be it. If that was giving them an extra can of balls, if all those little simple things that made them be able to feel best about themselves, um, yeah, we got pretty obsessive around trying to make that happen. So the sailors knock on your door now asking for some lollies? <laughs> Maybe I need to with Pete and Blair. I don't know. They, they eat way cleaner than the tennis players, so I haven't, I haven't figured my one out for them yet. I reckon it might work with some of the members, but... Uh, yeah, no, I'm not so sure, Pete and Blair. Mm, no, they're fairly um, nutritionally focused, shall we say. Um, who was the player you probably take the most pride in luring to Auckland? Yeah, it's always a good question. Um, I think, I don't know, there's, there's varying ones for me. Some were friends that I love being able to share what we did with friends, like any walk of life. Um, so some of those, you know, there was immense satisfaction. Um but I think Venus was probably the one that really changed our world. You know, we'd obviously not had someone of that ilk before. Um, and she's just such a remarkable human in every sense that not only did she come, she came back every year. Um, you know, I can remember the year that Serena lost and you know, what went from probably my career highlights to probably the lowest point in my career in the space of 12 hours. Um, yeah, Venus stuck around for five days more than she needed to that, that week, even though she was out of the tournament, just to be around and go and see sponsors, go and talk with the volunteers. Just, you know, her heart was so big. Um, and so I'll always be thankful to, to Venus. I think she was a player that we changed the view of the ASB Classic in the dressing room over. And once we had that change, then we could go about doing our job and making sure that now we'd, we'd capitalise on it. But I think she... Um, personally, personally and professionally was the one that probably meant most to me. What about the one that you regret not getting? 
uh, I guess it, it probably always sits with Roger. I, I, I wanted Roger and I never got him. Did you get close? Yeah, I, I, I probably owe Tony a message because he still said it happened before it finished. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how close we got. We got bloody close with Rafa. Um, in fact, the year that we got cancelled, we were going to have Rafa um, on a really different format. Um, so, yeah, that, that, those two probably are the ones that I always desperately wanted. Um, but, yeah, it always haunt me that I didn't quite get one of them across the line. Um would desperately have loved to see those two play. And Andy Roddick was probably the other one, really oddly. Um, he was the other guy that was really, you know, probably a big name here that I think would have been spectacular and probably the one that was achievable. Um, and I was probably 12 months too late, unfortunately, with him. He said yes, and um, I can distinctly remember his agent walking past me at the at US Open within the Players' Lounge there, and I was pretty good mates with Ben, and he went past me and almost blanked me. I was like... Jesus, that was odd. And it turns out he was going to the press conference where Andy was abruptly announcing his retirement. And I don't think, uh, yeah, myself certainly, or I don't think, based on the interaction with Ben that day, I don't know that Ben was across that it was happening. Um, and so, yeah, that was one that um, we'd sort of built all of our plans around that year of having Andy Roddick and, yeah, very quickly had to, to change suit. What was the biggest appearance fee you had to pay? and <laughs> uh, sweat equity or real money um, yeah look, we, we, we never really you know, you'd be amazed like some of the big no players and I shouldn't say who but some of them I didn't pay a dollar there was years where probably two of our biggest stars I didn't pay a dollar in a couple of the years that they came such was the relationship and I think that that's testament to the team and what we built at the Classic um, but yeah there was a couple that you had to change yeah, you had to buy their opinion change too and so probably in those early days, I ended up actually spending more on the early days than I did the latter days. Um, so yeah, that, some of those early days, it wasn't uncommon for us to spend a couple hundred grand on a on a player. It was pretty few and far between. Yeah, you might be able to do that once or twice. Um, yeah, but it, it really for us, it was more relationship driven and what we're doing and around it than um, than uh, than the player themselves. I, I certainly got to a point where I wouldn't do airfares anymore because I got burnt on that way too many times. I'm guessing there were probably some unusual requests to get a player to sign on. Are you able to enlighten us? Yeah, there, there are a fair few, mate. Um, yeah, karaoke machines for, for Serena was a pretty well-documented one. Um, a suite for that karaoke machine, which probably was, was not required. Um, yeah, mate, we, we did so much. We're getting athletes' clothes rebranded, um, like literally getting a one manufacturer's brand covered with another one so because they'd done a deal the night before um, I remember uh, I'm about the least cool human you'll ever meet and uh, I remember through the young American girls came up sort of you know, as young girls do jumping up and down with excitement in, in my office one day wanting to know if I had any connections to get them to a concert I was I didn't even know who these people were uh, it was a, a singer called Cardi B, who I've subsequently become aware of, but at the time I had absolutely no idea. Um, and so the, I, I, I think I won friends for life with them when we got them. I, I was lucky enough, you know, and New Zealand's a pretty small industry. I could ring Hamish Pinkham from Rhythm and Vines and go, mate, any chance I can get these guys down? And so Hamish took care of them with a backstage pass and they, they went and had a whale at the time. And so, um, yeah, they... Uh, 
they became friends for life. One of them ended up winning doubles actually at the Classic a few years later. So um, yeah, there's always lots of weird little wonders. Lauren Davis always liked organic wine, um, so you'd have to track down organic wine for her. Um, vanilla bean scented candles for Sloane Stevens. <laughs> you know, lo- lots and lots of weird things. So I, I, some I probably shouldn't repeat that we did for Jack Sock. So um, yeah, lo- lots of funny stories, but uh, that's probably for an after dinner speech sometime. Carolyn Wozniacki's engagement ring. Yeah, that was terrifying. She said, "Would you look after?" Me? I said, "Absolutely not. It was worth more than my um, my entire existence." Well, I actually screwed over her um, her engagement <laughs> party. I, I sort of I had lunch with them. They flew through New Zealand on the way to Tahiti. They were going to Bora Bora, and um, so they had something like four hours on the ground here. And this wasn't during the classic. This was end of season. Um, and so they had four hours on the ground. So we went and had lunch with Caroline David Lee, her, her husband, then partner, and I down at down on the waterfront. And I was giving David shit around, shit, mate, you're going to the most romantic place in the world. You're, you're dropping a knee. And I didn't realise that he obviously was. And um, Caroline started getting into him in the, the same way that I was. And so I made a, he sent me a message later on that day going, Jesus, thanks, mate. I really appreciate the um, stitch up there. Uh, so uh, it was a good lesson to, to maybe not joke about those things when they they go into a romantic holiday. So that was obviously a no in terms of looking after her engagement ring. But was it kind of hard to say no at times? Was it in the vernacular? Yeah, it was. I think you know, the, and probably more in the latter years when you you know maybe became a little bit more confident in 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 what you delivered and 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 probably your your relationship and respect in the dressing room. Um, yeah, one of the best things I ever did was have a real crack at Serena when she lost. Um, it took every inch of my courage um, to to have a real go, um, and I felt like we deserved it. Um, you know, we I, I had a massive crack at Jack Sock one day where when he quite clearly tanked, um, and I didn't think that was good enough as our defending champion and someone we'd looked after more than most um, for many many years, and to be repaid with. Um, a performance like that, I, I just didn't think it was 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 good enough. Nor I, I thought we deserved better, quite frankly. Um, and so I wasn't afraid to have a real crack in in those spaces. And it was the best thing I did because I think you earned respect. You know, if, uh, all the players knew what had gone on and knew it wasn't good enough too. And I, I'm sort of pretty firm in the belief if you if you don't respect your product, no one else will. Um, and so whilst I was always willing and um, yeah, we would do everything we possibly could for people. Um, yeah, we were a bloody good tournament and deserve to be treated like it as well. Is that part of, I guess, why the vote the players voted the ASP Classic their favourite tournament on the WTA tour? Was it was it five of the seven years you were involved? Yeah, which was nice. And one of the years they didn't uh, they didn't hold the, the the awards. So yeah, it was always a really proud one for us. That space, yeah, little old New Zealand. Um, yeah, it was it was awesome to see the the recognition that we were held in, and um, yeah, I'm immensely proud of of the team and what we were able to deliver there. But again, I just kinda, I don't think it was that hard. I, I think we treated them like normal people. Uh, you know, you, you've got to know my personality reasonably well. I'd like to have a laugh, and you know, if Serena did something stupid, I wouldn't be afraid to take the piss out of her with it. And I think it made it real for them. Um, you know, we, we went the extra mile. We'll always do as, as much as we could make the personal touch um, 
you know, we'd always try and do that. You know, I think of an example where when Serena turned up the second time round, um, and Olympia was with her, I, not only did we want to give something to Olympia, you know, I guess the notion of Olympia's happy, mum's happy, um, but we wanted to sort of take that a step further. I got my daughter, who was the same age, to give it to her rather than us giving it to her. And so again, there was just that extra little bit of connectivity. Um, yeah, and funnily enough, that year, Serena won and couldn't have been more of a delight to work with and ended up staying in our lounge drinking till 3am in the morning and doing cartwheels on centre court. And I just remember the other, the, the WTA going, what the hell do you have down there? You know, that's, that's something no one ever got to see. And she was quite happy sitting amongst even some of our volunteers doing that. Um, but I just think, you know, you create an environment that they feel relaxed. We, we had a culture, we, we, we didn't want the best players in the world. We wanted the most remarkable players in the world. And if we could foster an environment that they felt most at home in, we were always going to win. Um, you know, I think if you commit to that, you know, the, the outcome probably wasn't that unexpected in the end. Serena was just uh, scared of another serve from you, wasn't she? <laughs> well, I'm really stoked I did that. Man, that was tough to, to build up the courage, particularly to Jill, who her, her agent, um, who I've known for two decades. You've got a long-standing relationship, but I've also been on the end of some reasonable conversations with Jill too. Um, but we deserved to then, you know, and, and you know, we weren't respected. And, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that we were. And, and you know, I, I cannot speak highly enough of Serena and Jill that next time round. I don't think the negotiation took more than 40 seconds the next time round. Um, and so, yeah, I have to tip my hat and, and, you know, really respect just how amazing they were. She did everything. I actually stood her up for a players party. She took herself by taxi down to the players party because I was late getting to her. She was walking around the viaduct by herself trying to find where our party was. Uh, but she, uh, yeah, she did everything we possibly could have asked. And, um, you know, I'll always really respect that. And, you know, with the beauty of hindsight, you look back and go, you know, she just found out she was pregnant. You know, I can only imagine, you know, that's a huge moment in anyone's life, let alone a professional athlete, let alone someone that's chasing history. Um, and so, you know, the, the performance we got in 2017 probably had a few layers that at the time we weren't quite aware of or um, or didn't appreciate. So the, the, I guess one of the, the offshoots of the job is that you also got a bit of a limelight yourself. And, and you know, I remember pictures of you and the social pages of the, of the Sunday papers. You know, what was that like for the boy, you know, who grew up on a farm in Pukekohe and left school at 16? Um, it was really odd on a host of levels on, on, on an absolute host of levels one it was pretty intoxicating at the start um, and you know it's a wonderful drug you know getting a little bit of profile and and alike um, so I, I loved it at first until I didn't like it and then it was impossible to escape um, it's a really funny piece I don't I'm now with the beauty of hindsight I don't know why anyone ever chases it um, you know you, it, it's it's not as nice as it as it appears but there's also the piece of it was just I, my alter ego was the ASP Classic. For, for, for those that know me, I'm actually a really quiet, quite shy. Um, yeah, I'm I'm an absolute. You know, if you come around home, chances are I'm in fat pants watching MasterChef. Um, you know, I'm very different to what that public persona was. But that's what gave you the confidence because the ASP Classic could be your alter ego, and it gave you the confidence that you could never have in your own life. Um, 
And so, yeah, it was, it was a really weird transaction that you know, I sort of went through moments of loving it and then went through moments of really, really struggling with it. And, you know, to a point we're now really happy being able to be in behind the likes of a Pete Blair and Russell where, where they can they can deal with that side and, you know, you can just get about doing your job. So you also received various offers to become, what, tournament directors for events overseas. You know, you talk about that intoxication. and How hard was it to turn these down? Um, I'll mix. Um, the ones in, in Asia and Middle East are reasonably easy. Um, yeah, there was a couple of the bigger tournaments that that were very, very alluring. Um, but you know, probably to the to the last answer, I'm 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 a real homebody. I'm I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I'm quite. I, I was quite happy doing what I was doing. I loved the Aspie Classic. They were my kids. Um, you know, I. I I don't think I was the best in the world at doing it. I just think I thought longer about it than everyone else. Um, yeah, because they, they were such a passion and such a hobby. Um, and so, yeah, look, I, I didn't really want to go anywhere else. I, you know, while I still had unfinished business at the Classic, I, I wanted to keep doing it because I absolutely loved it. There was loads of things that you didn't like, don't get me wrong. But, you know, walking out to a sold-out sold crowd, you know, that was an experience that, you know, I will forever cherish and when I left I, I said it had been a privilege and um, it really was it's it's been the highlight of my life and something you know forever in a day I'll be incredibly proud and, and appreciative that I had that opportunity so, so why leave it you know I know that the 2021 tournament was was cancelled due to COVID but you've said that COVID wasn't the reason for your exit so why leave if, if anything I think COVID extended it um, I was pretty ready to leave after the last iteration in 2020. Um, I just didn't think there was anywhere else we could take it. We, we, we sold out 17 or 20 sessions. Um, you know, Serena had won singles and made the finals and doubles. Um, all of that, had, had, you know, it, it was pretty hard to eclipse what we'd achieved. I think it was sort of the, that, that plan I'd set about, you know, really in the shower in London, um, all those years ago had kind of been achieved. And you know, I, I think you've got to know when to leave. Um, you know, when the right time is to finish. If you're not adding value, you know, it's time for someone else to come in and, and take it in their direction. And there's probably also just the moment of you know, I, I started in tennis at 20, and I was the peer of those players. You know, you related to them, you you travelled with them, you were friends with them, and all of a sudden, your friends weren't there anymore. And you know that I don't know. I I, I loved what I did because they were you know you're doing it with the people you loved um and so yeah that that probably had a, a pretty big impact as well just seeing the change of the dressing room was different to when to when you started you also said um that when you left school you had a chip on your shoulder with not many expecting much out of you is that is that chip still there if you're growing up um i don't think you ever get over that chip mate i, I you know I, I think you're always looking to prove people wrong if you've got that shit. Um, whilst it's lessened and whilst it's different now, and probably the hardest part is living with those expectations now. Like it was quite easy, you know, getting to a point of tournament director of twenty seven was, you know, it was easy because no one expected you to do it. Um, now, ten years on, there's expectations around what you do. Um, and I probably have struggled with that a little bit if I'm entirely honest. Um, so yeah, look, it's the, the chip's still there. It, it, it's different now, um, 
But you know, I think you know, when you ask the question around the Warriors, when you ask why I joined LGP, doing things differently and, and trying to um, prove a point you know, become, is probably still a pretty consistent theme in what I do. So let's just bring it all back. You know, you've got the sales GP in, in nine months' time. You know, what's on the agenda, you know, critically in that period? Yeah, we, we've got to go and build an audience. We, we've, we've got a real job to do to go and um, shout from the rooftops why this product's so amazing, why you should care about sales GP. You know, I've, I've never seen a sport that can talk to people that don't like sport before, and I think sales GP can. Uh, because of what we do in the sustainability space, what we do in the ocean conservation space, what our technology is doing in parallel industries, there's some awesome reasons to love us far outside the com- competition elements. Um, so we've got a big job to go and do to uh, to tell that story and, and grow fandom. And you know, we want this to be the most loved sports team in New Zealand. Um, so we've, we've got a, a hell of a job to do to achieve that. Um, you know, we've, we've got to get ready operationally for, you know, Christchurch hasn't had major events for, for a long time. Um, and that comes with challenges. You know, you, the, the industry is welcoming and amazing as they've been. You know, we've also got a, um, you know, there's, there's some expertise and, and um, services, et cetera, that don't exist. And so, you know, there's a, it's a harder job, I guess, than, than, than doing it somewhere else in that first term. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots to be done. We've we've got to get commercial partners on board. Um, you know, the reality of professional sport these days is it operates on um, on on the partnerships that we that we can generate. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be done. But yeah, the gosh, the opportunity in front of us is bloody exciting too. You've obviously got a lot of these ideas, but do you ever sort of sit down with the sailors and go, what do you think? You know, what could we do that would deliver a, a better experience for the for for the fans out there? Yeah, we, well, I have a lot of time with Pete and Blair talking about that sort of stuff. They're very, very hands-on. They're, they're probably the most hands-on athlete I've ever met. Um, and so, yeah, look, they're, they're, um, yeah, their thoughts and thinking is, is, is all over what we're, we're trying to deliver here. Um, I, 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 personally, I take inspiration from usually from outside of the industry. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in where you give up your spare time and money. And, and looking at that at those places for inspiration rather than necessarily another event. Um, so yeah, I, I, I take a heap of inspiration from the food industry as an example. Uh, yeah, so I think it's the parallel. Anyone that you're giving up your time and money to to be with is someone I think we can learn from. Well, we certainly wish you well um, over the next nine months. It's going to be fascinating to see uh, the Sail GP down in Christchurch in, in March next year, and I'm certainly. Uh, our family are talking about going down and, and checking it all out. So definitely keen to get down and, and experience it for ourselves. Um, normally at this stage of the show, I get the guests to tell the story of their worst wipeout ever. I'm kind of guessing that you might not have been involved in a capsize. So it's sort of the, the floor's here. You're always here a little bit. Is there a the biggest embarrassment, the biggest faux pas you know, that maybe you could uh, extrapolate on? Yeah, there's a long list of faux pas, but uh, probably the biggest embarrassment uh, was the ASP Classic. Uh, I can't even remember what year it was, maybe 2016. Um, and Roger Bowman, who was GM of marketing for ASB, was doing his speech as you do on the final day, you know, right before we handed the trophy over to the winner. And I'm all suited and booted standing on the, you know, the line of dignitaries. 
and Roger's giving a speech and saying how excited he is for what the tournament's done and how excited he is for next year. And then out of nowhere, it turns out and goes, but what I'm most excited about is we think this year is going to be the year that that tournament director, Carl Budge, proposes to his long-term girlfriend, Brian McKendry, uh, to which obviously everyone goes nuts and starts getting excited, including my now wife, then girlfriend, uh, who stood up in the front row. She tells me that she didn't think it was happening, but the look on her face would suggest otherwise. When I'm sort of in this row of you know people standing in the line of stern, and I'm trying to sort of look over my shoulder to Brian, trying to shaking my head going no 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 it's not happening this 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 is a stitch up and I don't know what's going on and it's just one of those things that wouldn't stop and when Jack came Jack Sock won the tournament that year and when he came to collect his award as he's walking up to the stage he got down on one knee and proposed to me in front of everyone and uh, then when he got up to the stage Steve McIver was interviewing him and the normal question of uh, you know are you going to come back next year and he just looked at me as I only a budgie proposes to his missus now uh, yeah, it was just it just carried on, and when you bear in mind that that was going out to over thirty million people around the world, um, yeah, that that without question was uh, the, the slow clap when I did eventually the presentation finished, and I, as soon as I could get away, I walked over to go and see Briar, and as I was walking towards her, the crowd started doing a slow clap. I was like this, it just kept on going. It was horrific, and so yeah, well and truly the uh, the worst uh, the worst moment. Uh, or certainly the most embarrassing moment of my life, and uh, it made for a pretty awkward uh, conversation with the with Briar there for a few hours. But um, yeah, two kids later and a, and, a, and, a, and an eventual proposal. Hopefully, we've come out the other side. Yeah, how soon after did the proposal come? Quite a while, actually. It was a it was a long way before I was ready, um, and probably a longer still after um, that night because it uh, it certainly caused a few interesting conversations. So. Um, yeah, it might have been another 18 months or so before I actually did finally propose. And did Jack Sock come back that next year, even though you hadn't proposed? He did, and uh, that was the year that we came very close to um, yeah, a, a full-on meltdown. So that was the year that he did the tank, and so, yeah, that was the last time Jack came to Auckland, to put it that way. I'm glad it all worked out in the end. Um, and as I say, I really hope um, the, the next few months go well for the Sales UP. And, and we're certainly watching the, the series with interest. Um, the next one's coming up what, in a couple of weeks um, down the line in Europe. So um, best of luck with that. And um, thanks for your time on, on Broadreach Radio. It's been a bit of a different one, um, but probably appropriate to, to mark the 50th um, episode. Yeah, thank you very much. Congratulations on that achievement. It's a, it's a hell of an achievement to get through 50 episodes. So, so well done and, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, that's it for this episode of Broadreach Radio. My thanks to Carl Budge for giving his insight into professional sport and what he's trying to achieve with Sail GP in this country. And my thanks to all of you who have listened to the show over the last 50 episodes. It's been a pleasure bringing these podcasts over the last two and a bit years, and we look forward to many more in the future. Catch you for the next show soon.